It is so good to see you this morning, and uh, I don't know if you gathered this from what Scott shared earlier, but it's also good that you can hear me this morning. <laughs> we, uh, we were rather um, hurried this morning. We were rather rushed as uh, when everybody showed up this morning, the sound booth, uh, they found out that the soundboard was not working at all, completely dead. It would not put out any sound at all. We scrambled, the sound came back on about 30 seconds before I got up to preach last service. Uh, and, and to say that it was a only God can kind of moment would be uh, an understatement. We put so much time and effort into Easter Sunday, uh, and, and at the end of the day, you have to recognize we wouldn't be here celebrating Easter by our own efforts. Uh, we're only here because God has chosen to do something great. And we've been sharing over the past several months our Only God Can stories. And many of you have shared, you can see on the wall out in the foyer, the frames of the Only God Can stories. You can go online to our website and watch them. Uh, and you can also go and submit your story because I know that there's a lot of stories left out there that you need to share your story because they're encouraging people all over. But there is one Only God Can story upon which all other Only God Can stories are dependent. And that is the story of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, that He is risen from the dead, and that we have a hope that, that goes back 2,000 years and that goes on for all eternity. And it's so important to the early church that they had this saying that they would repeat uh, and it goes on from the very earliest of times in the church, uh, and, and it goes like this. It's a call and response, uh, and so we have it up on the screen for you. Uh, I'll say the line, and then you do the next line. Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. Amen. And according to Christian tradition, this is known as the Paschal, uh, the, the Paschal greeting. Uh, and, and it originated with one of the characters in the story that we're going to look at today. One of these three characters that we see was the person who shared this originally. And so as we look at these three primary characters today, I want you to recognize that as much as the only God can part of the resurrection, obviously only God can resurrect the dead, but then the next step beyond that is only God can use people like He used to share the gospel message. We're from a, a, a loyal band of people who, who even deserted Jesus at the cross, and then He goes and turns them into the Gospel messengers who literally goes and overtakes the entire world with this message of hope. Only God can do that through them, but only God can do that through all y'all as well. Alright, am I showing a little southern roots in there? Yeah, only God can do that through you as well. And so as we look at these stories today that we see, we're going to see that one of these characters that uh, Christ is risen started with. But I'm not going to tell you which one it is right away. So here's our three characters that we see. In John, the 20th chapter, in verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week. Now, I, I want to point out something here to you as we get in there. They had a word for Sunday. They had a word for Sunday that they could have used, but John does not say on Sunday. He says on the first day of the week. Why would he say that? And as we look back through John's Gospel, we see that John is elevating Jesus. He is proclaiming the truth that Jesus was the Creator, that God the Father did His work of through creation through Jesus and those seven days of creation. And so now what John is saying in a very subtle way, 
is that on the first day of the week, God started His work of recreation. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who spoke them into being, is now doing a new work of recreation. Where His creation had fallen, He is now doing a work of restoration. Where it had lost hope, He is now telling a story of hope that is centered in the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it says, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John uses lightness and dark in his Gospel not just to tell whether the sun was up or not, but to give us a metaphor as to where we were. When Judas left to betray Jesus, it says he went outside and it was night. And so when Mary comes to the tomb on resurrection morning, it was as dark as Scott's face when he found out that the soundboard wasn't working this morning. All right? Like there was a sense of gloom. There was a sense of darkness in their life. And maybe you have come in this morning. The sun is out. The lights are on. But yet it is dark in your life. I'm telling you, this is the beginning of the story, not the end. And so it says that while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. That's where it starts to get a little scary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, don't like, I don't like dead stuff. Mm -mm. And so the stone is removed from the tomb, and it says in verse 2, so she went running to Simon Peter. Well, that's an interesting character to go running to, isn't it? She went running to the one who ran away. And to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, now, who is that one? I thought Jesus loved everybody. But in the Gospel of John, John is the author, and when he is telling the story about himself, he describes himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. That is not because Jesus didn't love everybody else. I know there's some of those teachers that say, Jesus loves you, but He loves me a little bit more. That's not what John's saying here. What John is saying here is that John was transformed so much by the love of Jesus that that's the name that he wanted to be known by. The one who was loved. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, so I'm going to step back into this story. Here's what it says. She said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put Him. They did not leave a post-it note on the stone that was rolled away telling us what had happened. And so here are our three characters. Simon Peter, the one Jesus loved, who of course is John and Mary Magdalene. Since Peter was always the first to speak up, let's start with him. I probably don't need to remind you of what, where we saw Peter last, do I? He was always known for his backfiring boldness Jesus was grooming him to be the leader of the disciples after he ascended into heaven, but just a few nights, late, a few nights earlier, Peter had failed miserably. Jesus called the shot on this one, didn't he? He told him, he said, Simon, before the night is over, you'll deny me three times. Simon went out fighting at first, didn't he? Cut off a dude's ear. How'd you like to cut off an enemy's ear? And then Jesus goes and heals it. Like, Jesus, we're going to be here all night if that's the way this is going to work. <laughs> so here he is out around a campfire as Jesus is on trial and he is asked by someone, Do you, you, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And the first time, I don't know him. I don't know him at all. 
Second time, I don't know this guy at all. The third time, since he was a fisherman, he even let out a cuss word. That's what the Bible says. He swore. And then the rooster crowed. And Simon Peter went running away, crying, weeping bitterly. And yet here he is in verse 3. It says, At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together. Everybody's running in this story. Did you notice that? Everybody's running because John's trying to tell us that this is a message that must be shared. There is an urgency to what is happening here. And then John, since he's writing this story, he says, but the other disciple, that's me, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Peter's already dead by the time John is writing this, and yet John's throwing him a little shade. I love it. He's saying, yeah, I was always faster than him, wasn't I? And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came in, but he was probably trying to catch his breath a little bit. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on the head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by himself. Wouldn't you think Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been so proud of Jesus? Here he was, resurrected from the dead, and rather than just throwing off those grave cloths, he folds them up even though he's never going to wear them ever again. And so, we see this story. We hear the story of Peter. We look forward to Peter, and we recognize that just about 50 days from now, he is going to be the bold, fearless preacher who proclaims the message of the gospel on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people come to believe in Jesus. He's going to be a faithful witness throughout his life. He's ultimately going to be crucified upside down because he refuses to renounce Jesus. And the hinge point is right here in this story. It's not the end of the story. It's just the start of the story. It's just from here on out, Jesus seeks to restore Peter painfully, but faithfully restores Peter to be the man who just a month and a half later is going to boldly proclaim the message of Jesus. And I want to remind you this morning that only God can take Peter from a total failure to totally restored. It started in this moment. And I want to tell you this morning that my guess is, is that some of you feel like total failures this morning. You feel like you have let God down. You feel like you have walked away from Him. You feel like at the most critical moment you have left Him. Even though you may have failed Jesus, and we all have, I want to tell you that Jesus has not forgotten you. That Jesus calls you to come to the tomb and to step inside the tomb and to look. And this is your first step forward. It's not the end of the journey. And I'd love to tell you that it was as if Peter's denial had never happened. I'd love to tell you, it's just like, you know, Peter and Jesus, like, we good, we good, that's it. The reality is, is that the restoration was painful and it was tough. But Jesus gave Peter the chance to acknowledge that he loved him three times. And Peter was restored. And I want to tell you that your first step might have been coming in these doors this morning. It might have been choosing to get out of bed and to put on your clothes and to come to church. Thank you for putting on your clothes, by the way. 
But that's your first step. Don't let it be your last. Come and look inside the tomb and see that it is empty, that He is risen, and that your sins are forgiven, and that you have a hope and a future as a messenger of the Most High God. Only God can take Peter. Only God can take Dustin. Only God can take you from a total failure and to see you be totally restored. But it wasn't Peter who shared the Christ is risen message. It didn't originate with him. We see the second character, our fleet-footed friend John. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, <laughs> reminds him again, then also went in and saw and believed. John was the only one who it says that he believed before he ever saw that Jesus was resurrected. Something clicked in his mind when he saw the empty tomb. And even though he didn't understand it, it says in verse 9, they did not yet understand that the scripture that he must rise from the dead says, then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But let's talk about John. Let's talk about him. While he was there at the crucifixion, and while he, Jesus had entrusted him with the care of Mary, which he faithfully did throughout the rest of Mary's life, the reality is, is that John had a nickname. called the, Him and his brother James were called the Sons of Thunder. This was not because they would stay out fishing late at night on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of thunderstorms. This was because he was hot-headed and hot-tempered. He had an anger problem, more than likely. And so, when it describes him in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus and the disciples were going through a Samaritan village. The Samaritans were known as half-breeds. They were people who were not looked upon favorably by the Jewish people. And the Samaritan people in that village didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And John came up with a brilliant solution. He said, Lord, would you like, to call down, would you like me to call down fire from, on hev from heaven on them? But let's just burn this village out. And Jesus, of course, rebukes John at this moment. But this is the type of character we're dealing with. And yet he describes himself as the one who Jesus loved. And so we see throughout his life that he grows. And this moment is a pivotal moment where John recognizes that there's something that must change about his approach. And John went from being known as the son of thunder to the apostle of love. Think about that. Think about the angriest person you know, whether it's somebody you look at in a picture frame or in the mirror. What if that life was to be transformed to someone who was known for their love instead? Wouldn't that be dramatic? Wouldn't that be an only God can moment? That's what happened in John's life. It is only because of John's gospel that we have these words of Jesus preserved for us. For God so loved the world. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Nothing in there about greater love has no man than this, that he calls down fire upon his enemies. 
And in his own short five-chapter letter that we know as 1 John, love is the dominant theme. He uses the word love 26 times in that letter alone, including see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called God's children. And in a line that might as well have been autobiographical, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. So we know with John that only God can take John from a lover of power to being transformed by the power of love. But we also believe that if he can do that with a crusty fisherman from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that he can do that in your life and in my life as well. And I don't know if you identify with Peter or more with John, but we see here that you can overcome your life of hopelessness, of anger and bitterness by trusting in God, and your life can be transformed to being known as a person of love. And if you want to see how quick that can happen, well, it can take a lifetime, I'm telling you. But I'm telling you, the people who will see it first are the people who are nearest to you. The people who you want to love most. Your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your immediate family. What would it be like if your life was transformed to being characterized by love? It doesn't happen by looking in the mirror and saying, I'm big enough, I'm strong enough, and doggone it, people like me. It starts when you look in the mirror and you say, I am loved by Jesus. And so John walked into the tomb that morning and saw the grave cloths. Will you step into the tomb and see your future? That your future can be one defined by love. But the statement, Christ is risen, didn't originate with John either. And that leaves us only one character, doesn't it? Mary Magdalene. Of all the Marys in the Gospel, Mary, is, Mary Magdalene is the one that stirs up a lot of interest. We don't know a lot of her backstory. Some people think that she was a prostitute. Some people think uh, that uh, she was the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet. We have no proof of that. What we do know is that she had seven demons. Early in her ministry, Jesus cast seven demons out of her, which raises a lot of questions for me. Did he do it all at once? How do you even go about casting out seven demons? Is it outdasher, outdancer, outprancer, outvixen? I mean, you'd think after casting out seven demons, even Jesus is going to need a little nap. And yet here she is, a woman who on the basis of her sex would not be deemed a credible witness in their culture and is chosen by God not only to be a witness to his death, but the first witness, the one who shared the message first with everyone else. I don't know about you, but I would start to question some of God's choosing at this moment. God, what? okay, you, uh, we see that you're resurrected from the dead, but why are you sharing this with me, is what Mary would say. And here she is, chosen by God. A woman who had more demons cast out of her than crazy ladies have cats. And here she is, the first messenger. In verse 11 it says, But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb 
She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, other at the feet. They said to her, woman, which this was, this was not a derogatory term, woman, this is a kind, polite word, woman, why are you crying? Apparently, unamazed by the angels, generally angels start off with do not be afraid, but with Mary, they took a different approach. Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Mary, you're talking to angels here. Something's going on. In verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Mary's like, how come everybody's asking me if I'm crying? This is weird. And says next that supposing that he was the gardener. Remember what I told you about the new creation earlier? That this is the first day of new creation? John isn't just giving us a little detail here. The reality is is that Jesus is the gardener. He is the one who is tilling the new soil of rebirth. He is the one who has planted the seed through death that is now growing into a magnificent tree. Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where they've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her four simple letters. He said, Mary. And just as in John chapter 10, Jesus said that my sheep will know my voice. Mary heard and knew. Something happened in her. Something clicked. And she turned around and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which sounds Italian as well, but it means teacher. says, do not cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went as the first gospel messenger and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Only God can take Mary Magdalene from demon-possessed to a dependable witness. I don't know what kind of demons you have in your life, in your background. I don't know what kind of shame you carry. I don't know what kind of ways you've written yourself off as unreliable. But the reality is, is that Jesus can change that too. And he entrusts the least likely people with the most important message. Only God can take Mary Magdalene and only God can take you and transform you from where you are and where you've been to become the most dependable witness. The gospel stories don't continue with this history of Mary Magdalene, but in Christian history, uh, we, we read about how she is a faithful and reliable witness. In fact, we found that she used her considerable wealth to travel and spread the gospel. In fact, Christian history tells us that while on a trip to Rome shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, that she worked her way into the room at a party with the most powerful man in the world at the time, Caesar Tiberius. And everyone was supposed to bring a gift to Caesar Tiberius. And as she stood in line and everyone said, Ave Caesar, Hail Caesar, when she got up to Caesar, she didn't say, Hail Caesar. You want to guess what she said? She said, Christ is risen. And she handed the most powerful man in the world an egg with which she used to describe the gospel story to him. 
If God can do that in the life of a woman who was possessed by seven demons, do you think that he can use you as a powerful witness as well? But that's not the last egg we hear about. There's another egg I want to tell you about that comes to us from a man by the name of Harry Pritchett. He was a preacher in a small town, and in this town where he lived, there was a young boy who he got to know who went to another church. This young boy was named Philip. Philip was eight years old, and he had been born with Down syndrome. He had succumbed to a number of sicknesses over his life. And on one Easter Sunday, he was there in his Sunday school room with a group of kids who really were starting to point out the differences between them and Philip. And we're starting to make fun of him on a more regular basis. And the teacher of that Sunday school class, those 10 kids, gave each of them an empty egg and told them to go outside and to find something that reminded them of new life. And so they all came back inside a few minutes later with their eggs all gathered at the beginning. And the teacher began to open the eggs one by one. One of the eggs contained a piece of grass. One of the students said, that's mine, that's mine. He said, yeah, that new grass represents new life. Another one had a flower in it. A little girl spoke up and said, that's mine, that's mine. The new flowers come out every spring. Another kid had a rock in it, which doesn't make any sense, but he's an eight-year-old, so that's what he did. And he boldly proclaimed, that's mine, that's mine. And all the students laughed. And then the teacher got to one egg and he popped it open. And it was empty. And the students started to say, well, that's dumb. That's stupid. Who messed it up? Philip spoke up and he said, that's mine. That's mine. They said, oh, Philip, you're so dumb. How come you didn't put anything in your egg? Didn't you listen to the directions? And Philip said, no, I did it right. I did it right. It's the tomb. The tomb is empty. After that, the class started to realize that Philip was special to them, that he could teach them something about hope. And later on that summer, Philip got sick, and with his weakened immune system was unable to fight it off, and he wound up passing. And at his funeral, there was a row that included his Sunday school teacher and the nine students who were in the room that day. And at one point in the funeral, they got up, each of them carrying an empty egg, and went and placed it at the casket of young Philip, declaring that not only was the tomb of Jesus empty, but that one day that the casket of Philip would be empty because Christ is returning for all of us. We will all experience resurrection. We will all experience the hope of Jesus Christ. If God can do that through Philip, if God can do that through Mary Magdalene, if God can do that through John, if God can do that through Peter, he can do it through you. Only God can do that. And now we want to celebrate the stories of a few more people who have seen what only God can do in their lives.